Thank you for listening to our show. If you know someone that would like this episode, please share and help us grow our community. You can find signed books for all of the authors you hear on the show and many more from our website, bookpeople.com. I'm Uriel, and I'm the events coordinator here at Book People. I was a bookseller for a long time, but now I work in the marketing office, helping to book events, plan them, and execute the 300-plus programs we put on a year. Uh, I was invited on here uh, to talk briefly about this book, Jen Chaplin's My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. Um, it's a book I was drawn to immediately, and it's sitting pretty atop my list of favorite reads of the year so far. Uh, when I first heard about it, I really couldn't wait to dig into this history of Carson McCullers, who, if you don't already know about her, was this iconic American writer who, at 23, penned The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. It, it was a runaway bestseller that explored the interior lives of five people living in this sleepy Georgetown. They're lonely, they can't really articulate what it is that they want, but they want it. Worst of all, they don't know how to get it. If it sounds like the bummer summer read of the year, you'd be right. <laughs> but it's also such a wonderful read. The other thing that really drew me to this book was that I found out a little late. In fact, the book was written by a former Book People bookseller. I don't know why, but I didn't really put the pieces together that the Jen Chaplin on the cover is the same Jen S. that was on all the staff recommendation cards I would see around the sales floor. Um, and all my time while I was down there, I'd aspired to write recommendations as good as hers. So. It was really interesting to kind of get a closer look into this person that I was appreciating from afar. Um, but so the book, it's its really kind of the perfect book, for me at least. It's, um, it's memoir, it's literary criticism, and it's a little experimental too. And it sort of has the thrust of a novel. There's this like back and forth between um, Jen Chaplin and this history of Carson McCullers that I just really enjoyed. And a little bit of background for this... Um, so the book is centered around Jen Chaplin's time while she was uh, doing graduate studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and all that time she was an intern at the Harry Ransom Center, which is a museum that uh, holds archives for a ton of artists, and one of them being Carson McCullers. And so during this time that Jen Chaplin was working there, she stumbled upon this letter from Carson McCullers to, uh, to a lover. Um, but this was, it seemed like something that had never really been put down in any biography or any sort of critical examination of Carson McCullers. Um, and so this kind of spurred this this uh, this interest in McCullers and kind of really thrust her down this rabbit hole where she was trying to find out everything and anything she could about McCullers to the point where she actually just took off from Austin and went to live in this home that was McCullers in Georgia um, for a while to really take this deep dive into the life of this writer who, for all intents and purposes, we don't know too much about. And this book is is a tremendous examination of the writer, of uh, the repressed history of her, but it's also a really interesting mode by which Jen Chaplin explores her own coming of age. Um, it was at this time that she was also kind of floundering and sort of kind of getting towing the murky waters of her own sexuality and coming to to uh really come to terms with their queerness and everything and so there's this really interesting parallel that's going on between the two between McCullers and who she was and not being able to really articulate that she was a, a queer woman and then you have Chaplin here in 2013 whenever she was writing this um, kind of going through that same story, and I think it's just this 
really wonderful book. I really encourage you to listen to this event, get a little bit more info, and then check out the book when you get a, get a moment. It's a really stellar read, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Thanks. So tonight, uh, we are very, very excited to welcome Jen Shapland um, actually back to Book People. She's a former bookseller here, um, which is always super exciting for us when someone leaves and comes back uh, for their book launch. Um, Although she lives in New Mexico now, we're going to call her an Austinite because she earned her PhD here at UT Austin, and that is actually, I think, where she got the inspiration for tonight's work. Um, her essay, Finders Keepers, won the 2017 Pushcart Prize, and she was awarded the 2019 Rabkin Foundation Award for Art Journalism. Uh, she is in conversation with Adina Reitberger of American Short Fiction. Um, so please join me in welcoming Jen and Adina to Book People. Thank you. So Jen, are, are you just going to start with a reading maybe, and then we can go into the Q&A? Yeah. I whittled my list of 100 questions down to like 20. 20. Okay. So. <laughs> we'll see what we can do. Yeah. We'll be here a while. Awesome. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, it's so special to be here. Um, as, as she was saying, I've, um, I worked at Book People for about seven years, um, and I used to stand right over there uh, during events at that little kiosk, and uh, I just would kind of watch in awe. Um, I never even thought that this was something that I would do. Um, but I do remember that the kind of first ideas for this book happened here while I was working um, and while I was kind of wandering these uh, aisles. So um, it's really cool to be here. Um, and so many people uh, that I know are here, which is also really special. So thank you all for being here. Um, so yeah, I'll read a few sections from this. Um, it's written in short chapters. Um, I feel like I can't like project over that way. I'm gonna just scooch a little. Um, can you all hear me okay? Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah, so it's written in really short chapters, and um, so I'll read a couple of those. Um, and all you really need to know um, is that this started when I was working at the Harry Ransom Center, which is an archive here in Austin on the UT campus. Um, and I found a set of love letters between Carson McCullers and a woman named Anne Marie, um, and was just kind of fascinated by them and needed to know everything about um, the two women who wrote them. So. I started by reading everything that Carson McCullers had ever written, which I had never read before. Um, and then from there, just kind of followed the path of her life. Um, I ended up cataloging her clothes at the Harry Ransom Center and uh, ended up living in her house in Columbus, Georgia for a month and um, followed her to Yaddo. Um, and the rest is all in this book. Um, okay, qualifications. Eleanor Roosevelt crossed the aisle at the 1961 Broadway premiere of Tennessee Williams' The Night of the Iguana to introduce herself to Carson, who was sitting with the playwright and his mother. Jordan Massey, Carson's gay BFF and a distant cousin whom she called Boots, described this as a tribute that meant more to Carson than the Pulitzer Prize. Roosevelt, it was later revealed, had a long and well-documented lesbian relationship with a reporter named Lorena Hickok, 
which Susan Quinn unearthed and devoted nearly 400 pages to in her biography, Eleanor and Hick. Yet, Quinn writes, I still encounter people who are reluctant to believe that Eleanor Roosevelt was passionately involved with another woman. I suspect that people react this way because they have a fixed idea of Eleanor Roosevelt, with her flowered hat and her purse and her sensible shoes slightly bent forward as she marches off to make the world a better place. That Eleanor Roosevelt dwells in a world that transcends all the longings, hurts, and excitements of passion. But that public persona masked the real Eleanor, as her letters to Hick make abundantly clear. To many people she met, Roosevelt's flowered hat, sensible shoes, and determination to change the world precluded her from being a lesbian. The easy joke here, but aren't lesbians supposed to love sensible shoes? However, if we stop short of making lesbians a joke for once and take them seriously as people, as women, we find individuals who choose to make their lives and their bodies sites for their politics and their feminism. I would like to celebrate this choice by finding its every nuance and expression. The first researcher who had access to Eleanor and Hicks' letters, which were opened to the public 10 years after Hicks' death, as she had stipulated, a woman named Doris Faber was appalled and insisted that the FDR library restrict the materials from public access. Stumbling upon their secret, she wanted it locked back up. Hicks' own wishes be damned. In her book, The Life of Lorena Hickok, ER's Friend, Faber turned their romance into a friendship, and even then, people came after her for so much as suggesting any kind of intimacy, even platonic, between Roosevelt and another woman. It seems Faber could hardly imagine such a thing. Nonetheless, these critics were distressed by the acknowledgement of even a close friendship between women. In the context of outright censorship of women's relationships, it only makes sense that Carson's story would be repackaged as a straight narrative. This ongoing suppression of details is even more troublesome given the burden of proof placed on queer relationships, both historical and present day. If it can't be proved with direct evidence of sexual intimacy, it never happened. And if you're looking for evidence, it won't ever be published. I never expected to find any confirmation of Carson's relationship with Mary Mercer, who was her therapist late in her life, though I had my own reasons to suspect it. While she was alive, Mary didn't breathe a word. In the years following Carson's death, Mary was unwilling, unable, to speak openly with anyone about her. No one had access to their therapy transcripts or Carson's letters to Mary, which Mary held back from the archive until her death in 2013. She refused biographers' permission to use her letters, those that existed. Her censorship was thorough. When the Duke University Archives asked for her letters to Mary Tucker, Carson's childhood piano teacher, with whom she developed a friendship after Carson died, Mary told Mary Tucker in a letter, destroy them. It is strange to apply the expectations of discovery and evidence to a person's life, let alone a person's love life. As I read and researched Carson, I learned that evidence itself is slippery and discoveries never final. They shift as more voices, more sources are added to the mix. They shift according to the mood of the biographer or the critic, and according to my own mood, and according to the mood of the weather on the day I'm reading. 
I didn't trust the discovery of Carson's relationship with Mary I found in the transcripts, in part because I suddenly didn't trust myself as a reader. If Carson was a lesbian, and if her relationships bore that out, wouldn't someone have already said so? Wouldn't it be known beyond rumors in the queer community? It was a real mindfuck, the back and forth between scanning indexes of heavily researched biographies that do not contain the words gay or lesbian or homosexual, and reading Carson's adamant descriptions of her own feelings and experiences. I also realized on some level that I was a confused queer person looking to Carson as a role model. I looked to everyone I met as a role model. I was in my mid-20s. And so I must have been reading into her queerness, seeing what I wanted to see. I must have been a partisan of the gay agenda. Already, I was suspicious of my own desire for proof. In the introduction to his notes on her life, Boots writes, I knew Carson too long and too well to be removed completely from the story of her life. But just what my role was and how important is not for me to decide. I'm hardly qualified to write a biography of Carson McCullers. I am hardly qualified to write a biography of Carson McCullers. Who am I to her? I slid my arms up the sleeves of her long lime green wool coat. I folded her nightgowns. I labeled her socks. I made biscuits in the kitchen of her childhood home and I walked in the park where she used to play by herself. I have read enough biographies to know, in no uncertain terms, that they are built of artifice and lies. I am not a fiction writer, and this is not a biography. Biographers usually seek to fill in gaps, to add narrative to strict chronology, to render a person's life so that it reads like a 19th century novel. But Carson's is not an unwritten story. Rather, it is a story that has been written over, revised, and adjusted to suit various people's needs. The more I read and researched, the more I began to question the versions of her life that exist and continue to circulate. I began to feel that someone, several someones, had put the jigsaw puzzle together all wrong to form a picture of Carson that didn't match the one I recognized. First, I had to take the puzzle apart and find all the faulty links. Then I began to reassemble it a six-year process that took me from Austin, Texas, to Columbus, Georgia, to Saratoga Springs, New York, following leads and trying to fit the pieces together without knowing what the final version, my Carson, would look like. I'm still not sure how to know if I'm done. It is customary when writing a biography to talk to as many people who personally knew the subject as possible, but I instinctively avoided this. I didn't want to meet anyone. I didn't want to encounter another person who might try to put the pieces back their own way, who would tell me where the pieces go. I only wanted the pieces, in her words, and time. Carson's biographies, both the full-length books and the life summaries that get rehashed whenever she's mentioned in print, take discrete forms. There's Carson the prodigy, the wonderkind, a shy, small-town girl who bumbles her way to literary stardom, there's Carson the drunk, sloppy and salty and probably exaggerating. And Carson the needy, ailing woman who is a burden to everyone who gets close to her. Carson the desperate, chasing down women and men. And Carson the manipulator, seducing and using others. Carson called herself a bit of a holy terror and said she was writing her autobiography to explain how her early success and her chronic illness nearly destroyed her. 
None of these is my Carson. I never thought my Jane might approximate the real Jane. I never even had designs on such a thing, Maggie Nelson writes of her aunt Jane Mixer, about whom she published two books. Reading these lines is deep, deeply comforting to me. For what claim can I possibly make on a real Carson? She died 20 years before I was born. She was born 70 years before I was, on February 19th, 1917. My birthday is the 16th. At most, I can claim shared sun signs, and even that depends on your choice of astrological calendar. When I arrived at her childhood home, a few weeks after my 29th birthday, when I had insisted to everyone who would listen that I was actually 30, I found a partially eaten 99th birthday cake for Carson with her face silkscreened onto the frosting, inhabiting the entire bottom shelf of the fridge. Apart from forlorn condiments and leftover bottles of cheap wine, the cake was the fridge's sole occupant. The director of the McCullough Center told me cordially that I should help myself. Instead, I squeezed my groceries in around the cake for several weeks, trying not to touch it, until an employee of the center arrived early to set up for an event and threw the whole thing in the trash outside. Nelson writes, but whoever my Jane was, she had certainly been alive with me, for me, for some time. Is my Carson alive? What would that mean? I think of her more as a poltergeist, able to inhabit the objects that I encounter, charging them with something close to, but not quite, life. I am trying to resurrect the exact moment of each of my subtle re revelations about Carson. The white archival gloves holding up photographs by a corner, the lens of a camera, the air in the room, the glare of the overhead lights. Carson in a pinstriped suit and tall Argyle socks sitting at a piano. Carson leaning in the grass as a kid in huge baggy shorts and her dad's tie. How I long to preserve my first glimpses of these images, these things, all the while aware that as I preserve them in writing, I am removing older versions, overriding them, inevitably losing information, akin to what digital era archivists, unknowing poets, call lossiness. Preaching. So it isn't about, is Carson a lesbian? Or Carson is a lesbian? Or what is a lesbian? What I want to know is, how have lesbians gotten by and had relationships and found love and community? What does that look like? One answer, we don't really know. If we, writers, historians, biographers, can just start acknowledging the lesbian parts of ourselves and others, maybe we can start to know what that is, what it is to love women. But please, no more demands for certain kinds of proof. No more doesn't count unless bullshit. Don't tell me there's just not enough evidence. Let's call a lesbian a lesbian. Call yourself a lesbian if you've ever loved women, loved another woman, period. You loved your mother? Lesbian. <laughs> it's all well and good for me to say this now, but what, I've, what if I've been doing all along if not looking for proof? When I found what I was looking for, I had no clue what to do with it, what it meant. Queer histories often take the form of lists, of calling out and naming kindred spirits. This practice has largely gone out of vogue, as labeling a person's gender or sexual identity, past or present, is fraught with complexities. What did that person call themselves, and what did it mean at the time? Is it best to call a person queer or to specify? 
is labeling always an essentializing force? As Maggie Nelson insists, the best way to find out how people feel about their gender or their sexuality, or anything else really, is to listen to what they tell you and to try to treat them accordingly without shellacking over their version of reality with yours. Perhaps in calling Carson queer, calling her a lesbian, I am shellacking, setting her on my own terms despite my desire to give her space in her own words. By including her words, I make them my own. But there's a part of me, a defiant and somewhat juvenile part, that still wants the list. It's not all that important to me to define what it is to be a lesbian, constant shifting, the ever new, but I can't help but want to know who else is at the table with me, who I can call kin. And then there are several lists of Carson's possible girlfriends that follow that <laughs> chapter. Um, how long have I been reading? I think you can continue. Yeah, how long? maybe 10 minutes. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna read one more. Matters of taste. After reading over the transcripts of their therapy and informing Mary that it was all garbage, Carson started to type again with one hand. The letters she wrote to Mary, the narrations of her dreams, these were the beginning of her return to writing. Carson's life in the late 1950s and early 60s and her writings from these years, a play, a novel, a book of children's poems, tend to be ignored or forgotten. Carlos Dews writes that the final 15 years of McCullough's life saw a marked decline in her health and creative output. Writer's block is one of the themes of her autobiography, and Carson describes so many frightful times when I was unilluminated and feared that I would never write again. This fear is one of the horrors of an author's life. Where does work come from? What chance, what small episode will start the chain of creation? In this case, Mary, or the revelations born of their conversations and ensuing partnership, is the spark that gets her writing when she thought she was stuck forever. In a letter to Mary early on in their therapy, she writes that her novel has drawn close to her at last, and she is overjoyed to have it close again. A few weeks after their therapy concluded, Carson returned to the manuscript that she had started 10 years before. With Mary's help, she learned that she could have operations on her paralyzed hand to make it more functional, which she did. She began to write again. After working on her last novel for the better part of a decade, Carson finished Clock Without Hands within a year of her sessions with Mary. Clock Without Hands, published in 1961, brings together Carson's own experience with illness and decline, the racist and homophobic attitudes of small southern communities, and the first rumblings of the civil rights movement and white backlash, the bombings of homes purchased by black people in neighborhoods deemed white by the KKK. Of all McCullough's fiction, this novel speaks most directly to our own moment. It documents the 1960s resurgence of the KKK in public spheres, the resentful persecution of blacks and queers, and a belief held by conservative Southerners in the unqualified rightness of their power and wealth. Flannery O'Connor said that it was absolutely the worst book she had ever read, according to Carr. Boots's father, a judge on whom Carson based one of the characters, hated it so much he threw the book across the room when he finished reading it. According to Boots, Daddy also objected to those things in the book that a woman just ought not to be writing about. In that, he may seem to be the product of his generation and religious upbringing, 
but to him, this is a matter of taste, not of morality. Clock has an openly gay character, and another, Jester, who is trying to understand his love for another man. Jester asks his grandfather, the conservative judge, have you ever read the Kinsey Report? The reference suggests Carson's own piqued interest in its findings on human sexuality. She includes a joke for the reader familiar with the report. The old judge had read the book with salacious pleasure, first substituting for the jacket the dust cover of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. He tells his gay grandson that the landmark study he read clandestinely is just tomfoolery and filth. The year clock was published, Mary quietly divorced her husband, Ray. Carson and Mary traveled together to visit friends, Edwin and John in Charleston, Mary Tucker in Virginia, Edward, Al Edward Albee on Fire Island, where he and Carson worked on a stage production of the Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Albee wrote each morning for four hours, then at night, returning from walking the beach, he read aloud to Carson and Mary. He read Samuel Beckett's Happy Days and his own Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and the first act of Ballad. One of the major obstacles to staging Ballad was the question of Amelia's motivations. Albie asked Carson for an explanation. What went on upstairs when Marvin Macy tried to get in bed with Miss Amelia? Was Miss Amelia a lesbian? According to Albie, Carson wanted this left ambiguous. Carson held a now famous lunch for Marilyn Monroe, Arthur Miller, and Karen Blixen, pen named Isak Dennison, a friend to whom she'd been writing for years, at her house in Nyack. She served oysters and champagne, the only things Blixen would eat at the time. Writing to Mary, who was traveling during the festivities, she says how she missed her at the party, that it was a day they would have relived in their golden years. When Carson traveled, Mary came to meet her at the airport, the contemporary definition of love. I have yet to encounter another person who has read Clock Without Hands, except at my urging, though when it came out, it was a bestseller. For the author photo, Carson had to sit in a high-backed chair because she could not hold up her head on her own. Perhaps it comes down to matters of taste, whether we are interested in the later years of a woman writer's life, whether we are interested in what she has to say when she is bedridden and wheelchair-bound, when she has to take heartburn medication to cope with the stress of a book deal. She was 44 when the book came out and would not make it past 50. Dedications. Carson dedicated Clock Without Hands for Mary E. Mercer, M.D. I feel like I should mention that I recorded the audiobook of this last week, and when I read that the first time, I said that she organized a lunch for Marilyn Manson. <laughs> <laughs> we had to re-record that part. Um, so, Jen, um, I got Jen's book. I received it a, a few months ago, and like any, you know, I've known Jen for um, for many years, and like any kind of person who knows a person for years when they write a memoir, I just like immediately skimmed it to see if I made any appearances. <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't, because it's not about me <laughs> in any way. Um, but uh, I, I'm, I just, I, I was trying to save it and read it right before this event so I could just have it fresh in my head. And it was one of the things I was most looking forward to reading over the last uh, couple months. Um, and I have to say to to all of you guys that it's I've I've really truly never read a book quite like it. Um, 
there's, uh, I mean, it's, I guess it, it kind of actually goes into my, my first question, which I wrote, wrote them all out so I wouldn't get nervous. But um, one, the title is something that we had talked about. Um, and when you told me that uh, the title, I was like, oh, so that sounds good. And you're like, maybe they want to change it or work on it or you know, tweak it a little bit. And I was like, what, what, whatever, I don't know. And then when I was reading the book, I was like, no, like this is the title of the book. Like this must, and, it, and, and I realized that for me, it really gave, there were two different stories that seemed to kind of be happening more than that, you know, but uh, two that, that stood out in terms of the title. This idea that you were writing a, um, that you were writing a, an, an autobiography or a memoir of yourself through your experience of getting to know Carson and getting to, you know, like this particular time in your life. Um, and also that Carson w had two memoirs that she wanted to write, the first which she published and the second which were, um, which you had read the transcripts from which she had narrated to Mary and um, which never made it into a book. Um, and so in a certain way, you were kind of, you know, writing that book down. Um, and so I guess the first question would would be, I would love for you guys, or you guys, you and Carson. <laughs> uh, one of the great things I get to talk to her, about, talk about her in, in, like, she's my friend now. Yeah. Like, she's always going to be Carson from now on. <laughs> um, but for you to talk about the title and, and what you were trying to do with the, kind, with the two narratives. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, the title was kind of a struggle because I knew right at the beginning when I started writing these little fragments that that's what I wanted it to be called because kind of one of the things that really struck me about my research was like this woman kept trying to tell her story and kept being thwarted. Um, so she kind of tried to record it in these therapy sessions, which like if you've ever been in therapy, like that's a really bad idea. Um, you're like whatever you say in therapy is not going to be like a really publishable book. Um, and so, you know, she ended up saying that it was garbage. Um, but the the stories that she tells there are incredibly personal uh, and incredibly significant. Um, you just have to kind of read through a lot of, you know, other discussions of her daily life and the ins and outs of what's going on. And then, you know, there's a huge revelation. And then there's a lot of, like, other tangents in it. So you have to really kind of read through all of that to find the story um, and even to follow the story. But um, I really wanted to... Uh, she kind of understand the story that she was trying to tell um, and try to give voice to that without, you know, kind of running over it, without telling it in my own words, which ended up being really complicated. Um, and the there was a whole struggle with um, my uh, publisher over the title because there was this assumption that it would be confusing uh, to readers um, or that the title was really long. I don't know. Um, but... You know, and so I toyed with you know some of the suggestions that they gave me, like Carson in Love, House Sitting for Carson McCullers, and I just kept coming. I was like, no, I really think that it's important that this is what we call it, and I kind of had to fight for it. Um, and I'm glad that I did, um, but yeah, it was a little struggle. And then I ended up having to cave on the first word, on the word my. It used to be the word the, but no one cares about that for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. One of the things that to me was so breathtaking about the book is that it it felt incredibly intimate, um, both like an intimate way of getting to know Carson, but an intimate way of getting to know uh, you as well. Um, 
and throughout the book, or toward the end of the book, you talk about the idea of biography and how you've never really liked biographies. Um, and you, there's a, f a phrase, uh, you, a sentence you wrote, um, biographers broke into the house and rearranged all the furniture to their liking in this way that like, biography is false. And, and, and you kind of were reading about that just now. Um, and I think that, you know, and of course, in a certain way, as you also talk about in the book, like you're, you're doing a very similar thing, um, going in and, you know, looking for pieces of information. But I think what makes the book so different is that you never, like, or I haven't, anyway, read a biography of someone where the writer was such an intimate character in the biography. So, um, so any kind of agenda that you had or anything that you were looking for, like, as you found the... Um, you know, as you made the discoveries, we were, were kind of right there with you, discovering alongside um, you, which uh, to me made it feel like I don't very authentic and very honest. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about um, the decision to do to include yourself in the story of Carson and whether you had ever had the idea that maybe you wouldn't really make appearances in there. Yeah. I think as as I wrote it, I became more of a character. <laughs> like, I don't think I was planning to really be in it so much. Um, or to be, like, I, I didn't, it took me a long time to realize how much it was about my own life. Um, I really was convinced that I was writing about someone else. Um, and so the, the, sections that I started with were those clothes that I cataloged of hers um, at the Ransom Center. Um, and I was writing about those, but every time I tried to write about them, I felt like I couldn't capture some sort of like omniscient third person like voice on this and just say like uh, this is the suit that she wore when she was in Venice you know the last time and like it was you know th it was there was no way to write about it without also writing about my own reaction to it there was no way to write about a photo of her that I found without also talking about the day that I was you know viewing the photo and what was going on in my own life that day that made me see it a certain way or maybe remember a certain thing um, so it was kind of like because I was really adamant about not wanting to um, give this sort of false, falsely omniscient or falsely distanced perspective, um, my own voice and my own perspective was more and more integrated into it. Um, and it's not like it wasn't there, like that was really there from the beginning in what I was writing, but then at a certain point, you know, there were pieces I had to connect, there were things I had to reveal about myself to make it make sense. I, I guess going back to it, the, the New York Times today, if you haven't read Jen's amazing review in the New York Times, it's really, I cried. I cried a little, teared up. Um, and they call it, they call the book a state of the form reckoning, which does really feel like it's that. Um, did you read it? Yeah. You well, did. I skimmed that. I skimmed that review. <laughs> um, but it, that it, uh, yeah, that it's doing something that's really different in that way that felt to me as a reader really fulfilling and, and really really intimate um, and I think that's a lot of what I look for one of the things I look for um, in my reading well can I just say one more thing like biographies which I really love because you get to learn about like a person's daily life and the ins and outs and a time period and their relationships which I'm always interested in their communities biographies are so great but they're often written from this third person omni omniscient mm -hmm. perspective um, as, as if um, you could actually like see into another person's um, motivations and feelings and uh, reactions to everything that's ever happened to them which you can't even do that to 
your own, like you can't even see that in your own life. So it's like kind of absurd. Um, and I think that's why they bother me. There's something like something false there. And I'm going to totally go off at a tangent, um, unplanned question, but you were talking about, um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Jen, there was a while that she, uh, she had a clothing line that she would sew clothing it was called Agnes. It's they were amazing. I'm sure some of you are raising your hands here. Um, and there was an article or the, an essay she published about it in the Paris review a few days ago. Um, and I don't know if you've done this or if you have the capacity to do this, but like, would you ever consider, and you were just talking about her clothes um, and the different, you know, and you talk a lot in the book about clothes and clothes as a way that you kind of uh, try on different kind of personalities or different feelings that you have about yourself. Um, have you, would you like ever make like a, like a, a list of like your favorite Carson clothes and I don't know. It's just, just. I'm just really want to know about that more. I want <laughs> yeah, pictures. Sure. I want everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe yeah. the Paris Review will publish it. Right. Maybe. Yeah. They seem really excited. Um, they love you. Yeah. No, there are a lot of really good outfits over at the Ransom Center, which is really not what they advertise um, as specializing in. But if you if you show up and have a driver's license and go through a short orientation, um, you can request all kinds of things and uh, that includes clothing and that includes personal effects um, belonging to major writers and artists and I still think that's the coolest thing Um, and I cataloged Arthur Conan Doyle's stuff, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle uh, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas's belongings um, and there's, there's a whole mess of other things up there, typewriters eyeglasses, clothes yeah um, okay, so back to the originally uh, scheduled questions. Um, so one of the things that struck me in the book um, was the use of the word narrative. There's a lot of talk about narrative, and it seems that um, there's this desire for wanting a narrative. Uh, at one point, you say to this kind of, it seems like not such a great therapist. Uh, yeah, you say, I've seemed to lost the narrative thread of my life. And then in another, you write, um, I'm hesitant to ascribe steady narrative meaning to my own life as to any others. Um, and then with another therapist, a better therapist, um, you write uh, how you're starting to write a narrative for yourself and you, and you need a narrative with a room for messiness, one that can accommodate veering toward extremes. Um, and so it seems like there's this kind of, I don't know, like a desire for it and, and like a fear of narrative throughout the book. Um, maybe fear is not quite the right word, but uh, it seems to be reckoning, reckoning with this idea of narrative, um, both with uh, lesbian stories housed in straight narratives and the idea of narrative itself. Um, and I guess I would be curious to hear you talk about that. And, and also, um, I was wondering if like the book itself is in these really short sections, um, so they're kind of also defying narrative in some way. Um, and so use the word shards a lot. I like it. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to say it. Shards. They're shards. in shards. Yeah. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about narrative and um, what it, yeah. 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 I mean, I think one of the things that struck me reading the 
different narratives um, of Carson McCullough's life that come out in the biographies. And then just, you know, as I was reading, like anytime anyone mentions her, they're going to recount, you know, a series of facts or things that kind of tie together this, this storyline. But uh, reading the biographies in particular, even though they include all of the facts and all of these encounters, um, because they're so invested in um, what I would consider a straight narrative, which is the story of a person's life as told through, like, she fell in love, she got married, <laughs> right? They're so invested in that arc um, that they kind of like missed all the big stuff, um, which which were her other relationships that were going on. And that's what she's processing in therapy when she's in uh, her 40s. That's what she's kind of trying to figure out um, is sort of the, the meaning of these other relationships. But like when you're so invested in keeping something on this linear trajectory that goes, you know, through a series of milestones, um, you really lose kind of a lot of the uh, significant moments in her life. Um, and then I think that also applies to my own life. And I think that for me, reckoning with um, coming out and with being queer had to do with like suddenly understanding that this nice trajectory of my life that I'd been given since I was a little girl um, that ended in like a wedding was really not what I wanted, um, but also, you know, wasn't the life that I was going to have. Um, and suddenly, like, you know, that trajectory splits out into a million different directions um, instead of kind of pointing, you know, straight straight ahead. So um, I think there's something to be said for sort of querying these narratives um, and approaching it, you know, from the perspective of, uh, in my case, of a queer reader um, made it possible for me to kind of see all of these different avenues into Carson's story and then also understand the ways in which my own life was opening up. And the, 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 the bad thing with me doing this Q&A is that I just know all these things about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so also I, we've had conversations where you've t talked to me about how um, your partner Chelsea is here, who's the best. Yeah. And, uh, and you've talked about how you guys don't want to get married. Like you just yeah. like rejecting kind of that narrative. Sure. Um, which, I don't know, it seems like, yeah, just... To know, you don't have to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> but I wasn't planning to. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to. You don't have to. But I, I, I just. Uh... Um, but yeah, I think that's part of it, and and that actually um, kind of dovetails with like some other issues that sort of come up in this book and are also coming up in stuff I'm working on now, but having to do with like. Um, career and career path and like the trajectory that that implies um, as opposed to like the many jobs that most of us have throughout our lives. Um, and so I think there's something to be said too for um, you know just looking at a life story, thinking about how we write a life um, outside of the perspectives of um, I guess like heteronormative patriarchal capitalism, um, you know, outside of the confines of um, these sort of strict linear narratives that we've been given. Okay, so let's get into the um, exciting questions. Um, so, more exciting, I don't know, maybe not. But um, you went to Columbus, you went into the archives, you read... Um, a huge amount of transcripts that you then incorporated into your book, and then you sent your book out uh, to the archive, right, to approve um, the use of the content, and they just wrote back like a one sentence saying, like, 
No. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that was the Kirsten McCullers estate, actually. Um, yeah. And so um, I had a lot of quotations from the therapy transcripts, from Carson's letters, from her published works, from her unpublished works. Um, and when I sought permission from the McCullers estate, which is like represented by a few different people, one of them is uh, uh, her sole living relative. Um, they took six months to get back to me, um, which really screwed with the publication timeline. And um, and then they just said, no, you don't have permission to quote. And then they didn't say what, you know, like what can't I, you know, they, they didn't say, they didn't specify, they didn't say why either. Um, I have my own suspicions as to kind of what was going on and what they're opposed to. Um, and I have some inside knowledge of the estate and its workings um, to know sort of why, um, why they have uh, made it difficult for some other folks to publish, like her collected letters, for example, and kind of how long that has taken. Um, but what it meant for me was that I had to take the book that I had written um, that was now, it was about to be in galley form, and which is like a early edition of the book, and um, remove all of the quotations and rewrite them in my own words, which again like brought me up against this uh, conundrum, this this thing that had been frustrating me throughout, which was I don't want to speak for this person, I want to let this person speak. This whole book is about me trying to kind of allow this voice um, uh, or to kind of like, you know, put this, this other voice on the page and then suddenly I had to just like literally replace her exact words with words of my own. Um, it was devastating. But then I actually think the book got better. Like it actually made me um, think about and understand some of the things she was saying more deeply. Um, but it was, it was super difficult. Um, and I actually recently talked to someone who's a biographer who was interviewing me and like in the middle of the conversation she burst out and she was just like, I have to tell you, like, I don't know what happened with your book, but this same thing happened to me. And but it was like before the age of computers, so I was just sitting in my publisher's office with the pages, like, you know, <laughs> striking things out and going through it. She was like clearly still traumatized. So frustrated. Um so what are like some of the great quotes or lines like that were hardest to cut? Like are there ones that haunt you that you <laughs> <laughs> There are. There totally are. Um like uh at one point she says I used to be the most elegant girl in New York City. Um and that was hard. Uh the simple sentences are the hardest. Finding a proper replacement for the word elegant in that sentence was really hard because she's not saying beautiful, she's not saying stylish, she's not like, what is she really saying? Um, and then the same with the kind of conversation that opens the book. Um, that one was really hard. Uh, anytime when she was kind of saying something really matter of fact, like, um, I don't know what you mean by the word lesbian. What are they like? What did they do? Like, that was really hard to recreate because it's so simple. It's so frank. It's a matter of fact. It's so candid, which is just how the way, like, that's just the way she talks. Um, and that was hard to kind of capture and tone and a meaning. So it was like a weird translation that I had to get into. Uh, a few things, because we're in book people, uh, um, and for those of you who know Jen, know that, or know book people, even Jen, when she was working here, had one of the most wonderful recommended reads, and she had an entire bookshelf just dedicated to her books, and when I entered, I was the first place that I would go to in the entire store, and I honestly feel like that's true for various people who are sitting here. Um, and... 
Uh, and one, one thing that you say in the book is that you felt like the book came to you right at the right time. Um, and uh, um, and that it was this way to provide like life guidance or I don't know, maybe some kind of a project, but maybe some kind of solace or maybe even not, maybe it was more maddening at times. But I'm wondering, um, are, there, are there other books that have come to you at other times in your life that have felt like as powerful yeah. or as like instructive or as wormholy? For sure, yeah. I, I write about one of these. Actually, I wrote about a couple of them. One of them was the, a biography, actually, of uh, Zelda Fitzgerald called Zelda um, by Nancy Mulford that I read when I was maybe like in junior high. Um, I found it in the library, the Lake Forest Library, and um, I had kind of just found the nonfiction section and was like, what is this? Um, hi. <laughs> and that book is crazy because Zelda Fitzgerald had a really um, uh, wild life and really interesting life. Um, and I had never read about anyone like her. And the photo of her on the back of the book, she's like in her 30s. She's wearing a tutu and a polo shirt and point shoes. And she's just like sitting in an attic somewhere. It's amazing. Um, and I was like, who is this person? I need to know everything about them. Um, but that was, you know, a similar kind of moment where I was just sort of like wrapped. Um, and then... Uh, the other one that I've written about a lot, and you've heard me quote from Maggie Nelson a lot, uh, her book, The Argonauts, was really important to me. And I actually have an essay about how it became like this sort of litmus test in my dating life. Um, so that's coming out soon, and that's, that's a funny one. <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask two more quick questions, okay. and then I'm going to open it to audience questions. Um, one of my questions, it's, well, um, just because I'm sure some people here have read Carson McCullers work, some haven't. Um, is there, for those who haven't read is a, one of her books, is there one that you would recommend? Uh, and also, which book of hers is your favorite? Yeah. Or if you, know, if you were made to choose. <laughs> right. Um, I think most people start with uh, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I think they've heard of that book because the title is uh, just like sears in your mind a little bit. Um, and I think that's, I think you could really start anywhere. Um, I, I mean, I think all of her books have a lot to offer um, and a lot to offer to this moment. Um, my favorite is Member of the Wedding, um, which is short and really focused on uh, one character, Frankie. And I see little like uh, versions of Frankie in fiction that I read now all the time. Um, contemporary fiction um, and kind of late 20th century, there's just like a million Frankies uh, wandering around these pages. Um, so that's that's sort of my favorite. That's the one that Carson said uh, was a, another version of her autobiography. And then I also really think that, um, I'm just going to name all the books, uh, <laughs> Clock Without Hands and Reflections in the Golden Eye. Reflections in the Golden Eye are both her, like, really gay books, and, like, they're not, like, most people haven't read them, but they're crazy. And the m film version of Reflections in the Golden Eye stars Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando, and it's nuts. It's, it's all over the place. Um, so you should watch that. <laughs> Um, one thing I loved about, I mean, I that I really loved about the book is like it's 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 all these things we've been talking about, but there's also like all these fantastic surprises in it. The, her relationship with her mother is so interesting. Um, her relationship with her husband is like crazy dramatic. Like there's just 
everything. The book has all of the notes. Even you know, you know. I mean, you're like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Anyone else who's read it, um, it has all, it hits all these different notes. Um, but this one moment with the mother. This is such a silly question, and this is why I'm going to end it here. But um, uh, so uh, Carson is talking about her mother, and she said, I wasn't downright homely, but I was no beauty. No matter how mother fussed over me, I would have to sit at the kitchen table and be primped. Since my hair was straight as a poker, she tried to make little ringlets, and in doing so only uh, mashed the hair on my head. Every morning before I went to school, she told me to say prunes or prisms, because she said it made my mouth be set in a nice, sweet way. And I would just like to know, I, on the way here, have said the word prunes and prisms <laughs> at least a dozen times. Really? Yeah, did and I'm wondering, work? did you, do you see any difference? Yeah, I think, I think it's working. Did you, did you try it? No, I haven't tried you it. You haven't? But I do think that your mouth is set in a nice, sweet way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was just my, my silly question to um, yeah. But yeah, so why don't we open it up for some audience questions? Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat the question. They're, oh, yeah, ma- they're making me do that. Good job. I yeah, forgot for about the that. podcast. <laughs> I totally forgot. <laughs> so the question was: As a PhD student, did uh, did that help or hinder you in the writing process? Um, yeah. So I started this book while I was in grad school at UT uh, in the English program, and um, I was. It was sort of by accident uh, that I started writing essays um, while I was also kind of working in this critical mode. Um, And I was just sort of finding that my own voice and the subjects I was interested in, my writing just wasn't really fitting into the academic article format. Like, it just wasn't wasn't feeling right. Um, And then I kept having, like, kind of these, like, moments of success with my uh, nonfiction writing um, where like it would like win a prize with a lot of money and I'd be like wait a second like maybe I'm you know like doing the wrong thing Um, and then it was in my last year and finishing my dissertation and getting ready to defend that I stayed at uh, her house in Georgia Um, so I was kind of like trying to do both sort of that whole time and I did finish um, but I think that, um, you know, I, I I was able to kind of explore this other um, kind of writing at the same time that I was doing my dissertation writing, which was on a totally separate subject. Um, but I did find um, that the, the research uh, skills that I learned, um, the ability to work relentlessly on something like by yourself um, without, you know, coming up for air is something you learn in grad school when you're writing a dissertation. So all of that helped make it possible for me to write the book. Um, And, you know, I I certainly couldn't have done it without being an intern at the Ransom Center, um, which is something that an opportunity that was available to me because I was in grad school. Um, So that was also uh, kind of a huge part of it. So I think like there's no other way it could have happened, <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it definitely was kind of a moment where my paths split a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that not writing this book in an academic context made it possible for me to um, sort of sneak out of those categories, categorizations a little bit um, and kind of create categories of my own because um, I didn't have to fit anything into an existing, like, discourse so much, I was able to kind of create, you know, the discourse that I wanted um, with the the readings and different things that I brought to the table. Um, but I do think that, like, that is one of the tricky things, um, yeah, about writing in an academic context, for sure. Um, and, 
I don't know if I have an answer. Are we done? Can yeah. I ask one more of mine? I feel like there's just so many. It's <laughs> ask you later. Okay. Um, okay. Um, well, thank you, Jen, so much for coming back to Austin to launch your book here with us. I kind of felt, for me anyway, that where I went to graduate school is kind of a home, a home for me because it is just like a home of the the mind or, and also the friends. Um, and so it's great to have you back. Yeah, good to and, be home. Yeah. And uh, go buy her book. It's beautiful. It's, yeah, it's uh, full of surprises. There's one thing I didn't mention, but there's this great, like, there's just, it's, like, all filled with, like, literary gossip that's so great. Just, like, tons of it. It's just, and I think my, one of my favorites, we were talking about this last night, was um, a letter you found in the Ransom Center where, where someone, who was it that addressed a, a letter to Norman Mailer as Dear American Shithead? Yeah, that like, was, there's just, <laughs> that was one of his mistresses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it's just filled with gems like that, like, beyond, like, the really serious business. Yeah. <laughs> No, it's really juicy. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. juicy. <laughs> um, okay, and I think Jen will be signing books. Um, and yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much.